It looks like all hell has broken loose. The sky is falling and entire countries are being quarantined. And yet, people keep sending me text messages and want to talk to me on the phone and meet for coffee because I give them a sense of calm. And that's the big question here. Like, why am I still so calm with everything going on? As a matter of fact, Serbia yesterday declared a state of emergency. So my ability to leave Serbia and travel somewhere else uh, just got far more difficult. I could probably leave without too much trouble. Trying to arrive in any other country would be quite troublesome, uh, especially since Serbia has declared a state of emergency. Uh, it will be on notice as a country that is potentially highly infected, which at the moment it's not. There's only 50 some odd confirmed cases here, which means there could be up to 500 cases floating around, uh, the majority of which are here in Belgrade. And I'm still not too terribly concerned. Obviously, I'm concerned with the fact that it would be hard for me to travel anywhere. Even if I go back to the United States, there's a potential that I could get quarantined or be asked to self-quarantine for two weeks. And I'm not sure what the repercussions of not doing that would be. But I'm still uh, surprisingly calm. And I will remain that way. And you might be asking why, because things have just gone batshit crazy. And there's a bit of a pun there, since this apparently all started in bats. Now, th there's a lot of reasons I'm calm. For one, this is playing out pretty much how I said it would play out from the initial reports in China. From my very first podcast, this is playing out at least as far as infections and deaths, it's playing out just like I have said over this course of podcasts. And I, and I really didn't plan to do another one of these, but I didn't realize things were going to get so crazy. So we're going to talk about a few things in this podcast. One, uh, we're going to talk about just mention who I am. If you don't know Kiefer, uh, it you know, you're welcome to go to body.io and check out my about page so you know something about me. So this isn't just, uh, if you're hearing one of these for the first time, you don't think this is just some crazy guy. Uh, I started off in theoretical physics. I wanted to do string theory until I realized that it was way past its its sale date. Uh, and, uh, and, and then I got moved over into software in California. I, I was planning to go to Berkeley to finish my physics PhD after I became a PhD candidate at the University of Florida. Uh, no advisors there would take me on for what I wanted to do, so I thought I'd go to Berkeley and finished. And once out there, I got caught up in the software world, started doing software, and uh, since I was 16 years old, I've been studying diet, nutrition, the human body, which has led to endocrinology, cellular biology, molecular biology, uh, entropy in living cells, which is non-equilibrium, uh, thermodynamics, which I didn't even realize is such an underdeveloped uh, field of research at the moment. And this has led me into uh, DNA, proteonomics. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, so I've been doing this for, man, 
almost 30 years. Uh, and I and try not to date myself, but that should make it pretty clear I'm over 40 years old. Uh, and, I, and I've also done all kinds of things in different sports arenas. And fans, fans of the podcast, you know, know all of this. I'm an accomplished athlete, uh, accomplished academic, and I've got a few books about this stuff. Now, what I'm not is an expert on infectious diseases, although over the last few weeks I feel like I've become one uh, because I've been trying to chase this down from every angle. And my initial podcast about this, I wanted to be as accurate as possible without giving people too much confidence, but also without scaring anybody. Uh, That should be the only thing anybody is doing right now and without giving bad advice. So... So there we are. This is, that's who I am. But I also want to talk about how you should be dealing with this, and that include dealing with the coronavirus outbreak, and that includes what you can ex- what you should look for as signs of possible infection, what you can do to limit infection, uh, what you can do if you are infected to limit the symptoms so that you can give your body a chance to heal without needing to go to the hospital for a respirator and to to still put some perspective on everything that's that's going on uh and and the first thing i want to talk about is one reason there's so much panic going on is that governments all over the world dropped the ball on this one Uh, when the proper things should have been done back in January and it was very evident that there was an outbreak in China we knew what was going on through December um, we knew it was an inf- it was a disease at least as infectious as the flu which is highly infectious uh, and I'll bring this up later but on a, on a normal year about 40 million Americans get the flu I mean it, it's highly inf- infectious so like we knew there was trouble. Now at that point, the right thing to do, every country should have done this, including the United States, was that anybody who was coming from mainland China, if we didn't have tests yet, which actually the World Health Organization had testing kits for the coronavirus that the United States refused to use. They wanted to develop their own. So we'll come back to the issue of testing later. But at that point, countries could have said anybody who had visited China or anywhere there was an outbreak in the last two weeks needed to be tested and quarantined until the results of the test came back. And if they came back positive, they needed to be stay in quarantine for at least two weeks. That pretty much would have stopped the virus. Take, for example, Italy. Their entire outbreak, which is over, I think, 20,000 people now, their entire outbreak started with one person who came back from China, was infected with the coronavirus in January, and he was, he was floating around for two weeks infecting people, got kind of sick, not sick enough to go to the hospital, And then even when you get past the symptoms, you're still shedding live viruses for up to a week after you're better, possibly two weeks. We know a lot about the coronavirus now. Uh, It's it's being studied extensively. 
So that gave him a month, basically the entire month of January, just running around infecting people. And then those people infected other people. And by the time they got a handle on it, it was out of control. And the United States, same position. Uh, the first cases in in the state of Washington, uh, particularly the lethal ones, when they studied the virus, when you sequence the DNA of a virus, you can actually tell where it came from, what generation it is, so on and so forth. And the outbreak in Seattle had been floating around at least since the second to third week of January. So all of this could have been prevented easily. But we're, we're past that now. We're way past that. And all the media outlets and everything pointing fingers and laying blame, it's not doing anybody any good. So we need to forget about what's happened. Now, I mean, not completely forget. This will happen again. We should really take note of our failings this time around so we don't fail next time. And I know there's a lot of hype about, oh, there's not enough testing kits and other countries are testing like crazy. Testing, other than that initial scenario that I just mentioned, which is way past, like we can't recapture that. Testing would not have, would not contain this virus. The only way at this point that testing could help stop the, the spread of this virus is if we tested every single person and everybody who tested positive was quarantined and everybody who tested negative was quarantined because you can't put them back out in the public until you have everybody tested because they might run into somebody who has the virus and then become positive and then they have to be retested. Obviously, that's not possible. There's no other scenario where testing at this stage would stop the spread of the virus. Now, it's important to understand the spread of the virus and so that we can have good statistics on spread rate, which I will talk about here in a minute. Um, but the, the testing would not, w- testing at this point will not make a difference in the spread of the disease. So before I get into the things that will make a huge difference, uh, no, I'll cover that now actually, because we're past the easy, easy stages, the, the stages where we could have gotten this under control. Now the next we're now what would be called the higher level network effects. So the first cases were low level network effects. So the first person to bring it here or the first couple of people, the question is how many people did they contact in their community? And then how did those people touch other communities and so on and so forth. So it's kind of a local individuals, individual to individual spread that we're really concerned with at that point. We're past that. We can't we can't really do much about that anymore. So now we're at what would be called the network, the higher order network level. And that's we're considering communities as individuals. So within a community you could have a high infection rate, but if that community is isolated, which is the idea of quarantining, say quarantining all of Italy, then that that node that individual area or individual network component is taken out of the network. And when you do that, you stop it from infecting adjacent networks. Now, this becomes super complicated because in the modern world, 
somebody from Seattle can fly to Georgia and boom, you just planted it in Georgia. It could be there two to three weeks before anybody knows and you have massive spread. So these are the network effects that are incredibly important right now. And maybe you might want to know how important that is. So as of this moment uh, that I'm recording this, there's roughly 5,000 cases, confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. Now, that doesn't sound that bad until you realize that this is an exponential growth. In a week at the current spread rate, in one week, seven days, we'd be looking at 18,000 cases. And it's not that hard to do the math. Exponential growth, it grows up really fast. So the current spread rate is somewhere between 1.2 and 1.15. So let me let me tell you what that means. So for every 10 people that, are, that have the coronavirus, of those 10, they'll infect 12 new ones. So you're getting a net increase in the number of new infections. And then those... 10 of those new 12 will then go on to infect 12 more and so on and so forth. You've got a positive growth at 1.2. Now, there's a huge difference. Let's, if the spread rate were just 1.15, so if we just decrease it a little bit, in 30 days, there will be roughly 200 to 300,000 cases. So this is 30 days at 1.15. Now, if we stay at 1.2, which is the maximum, we're up to 1.2 million cases in 30 days. That is an astronomical difference for a small difference in infection rate. That's very important to notice. So that's 1.2 versus 1.15. That's over a million new cases in that little bump from 1.15 to 1.2. And this is where these larger network effects come in. And this is what government, this is what the U.S. government and state governments are scrambling to get a hold on. And that's why they've canceled large events, especially events that would attract people from around the country. Uh, They've canceled gatherings of more than 250 people. They try to keep people home from work, although the work thing and closing schools, that the effectiveness of that has already passed us by as well. Uh, That would be a lower order network effect, and we missed that one too. Uh, That should have been a couple weeks ago when there were maybe 50 cases in the United States, which I think actually might have only been a week, week and a half ago. That's when they should have been closing schools and keeping people home from work. That's the lower order network effect. And we missed that one too. So we missed the lowest level individual effects. We missed the low order network effects. It could have been stopped in both of those scenarios. Or very, we could have gotten quite a bit of control over it. And now we're on the higher order network effects. And this is why sporting events, all of these things are being closed down. And that's super important. Actually, several papers have been written about these network effects and pandemics. And, you know, small things at this stage, like, for example, you could go to work, but you would, and you could go out and socialize. But the key would be at this point that you go to exactly the same places every day and nowhere new. So you don't have to go to the same coffee shop 
every day, but if you go to the coffee shop, it has to be the same one that you always go to. And what this does is this breaks down some of the more broader network connections. What you definitely don't want to be doing at this point is traveling. Traveling is like a huge network effect. You've just taken, even if you have no symptoms, and you may actually never develop symptoms, you could still have the virus and you could carry it to a new area. So at this point in the United States, uh, restricting all flights from Europe will have no effect. 100 new cases a day from Europe actually will have very little effect because it's already seated in the United States. What would have a major effect is if you limited domestic air travel. That would have a major effect and you would have to limit, you would have to try to limit people moving outside of their normal area of life. And this would keep networks more highly isolated in, and insulated. And the infection rate's not going to go from 1.2 to 0 because, or, you know, below 1 because of that. And I'll explain why 1 is important. But it, you could easily get a drop from 1.2 to 1.15. And actually, some of, the, some of these papers, as best as I could f use their models, which I did not have the time to fully code up and do it, so I had to kind of do some ad hoc um, approximations in the models. But breaking those large network effects could actually get the rate down to 1.07. At that level, you're looking at the total number of cases in 30 days, considering there's about 5,000 now, total number of cases at 1.07 would be somewhere around 20 or 30,000. That's a huge difference. So 20 or 30,000 versus 200,000 versus 1.2 million. These are small changes that make a massive difference in the number of infections. So that's why not going to these large events is important. Actually limiting crowd sizes to 250 people or less is stupid. That, it, that connects outside networks and it will not drop, well, it, it will drop the, the higher order effects some, but not as much as you could. If you just stayed in your community, whether that community is work and your coffee shops and your normal grocery store and nowhere else, this is not the time to travel. This is not the time to go somewhere new. Traveling, even just a few people traveling actually completely destroy any benefit you could get and and that's the that's actually they've run numerical models and shown that as well you only need a few people to break this higher order network isolation to keep the infection rate at what it is so whenever you have a friend, and I've heard news reports about this, where people are, especially younger people who know their risk is low, they're saying, well, there's so many cheap flights. I'm going to fly to Europe and hang out on, or I'm going to fly to New York and hang out on Times Square because I want to do something fun if everybody's sick. That is so, and I very rarely use expletives, but that is so fucking irresponsible that it is insane to me. Like, if you have friends like that, you should be shaming the shit out of them. That is so irresponsible. And 
I mean, this could get me off on a rant on how egocentric Americans have become. And it's a Western culture phenomenon, but Americans I have found, at least traveling across the Western world, North Africa, some um, Eastern European countries, Americans are the most egocentric. And I don't mean that necessarily in a very, very bad way where they're like super rude and you don't care about anybody else around them but they're the way they approach the world is well if it's not dangerous to me i don't care and i am seeing that played out in such intense relief right now in the united states and especially some younger people who pretend to care about the world they just don't give a shit so who cares if their actions expose another million people to potential death they just don't give a shit flights are cheap Uh, like like i said i could totally go off on this rant but i'm not going to because everybody should help everybody else understand their responsibility in this situation now again you should be able to hear my voice i'm not panicked about any of this and even in the worst case scenario, which isn't great, it's not going to be catastrophic. But we can make massive, massive differences in the infection rate with these simple changes. And that's real. That's amazingly simple. If you have no reason to travel somewhere, don't decide to travel because flights are cheap. Like, don't travel. Don't go try, this is not the time to try new restaurants. This is not the time to explore some hideaway that you discovered on Airbnb that's 300 miles away. This is not the time to do that. And yes, I know it sucks. Believe me, I am now in a country that has issued a state of emergency and my ability to travel around is not my choice. I have limited options now. And actually, even if it was my choice, I would stay put. I don't know what my infection status is. As a matter of fact, I'm 95% positive there is a young lady in my building who lives here who has the coronavirus. She has all the symptoms. I've seen her multiple days. And over those days, she's looked worse and worse. She's shown signs of fever lethargy uh she has a dry cough that is constant and she never covers her mouth she's coughing on everything so who knows how many people in this building are infected but again i'm not highly concerned i try not to touch the door handle outside since i've seen her coughing on it i wash my hands when i come inside and that's about it i don't do much more than that So now that we talked about the things that you can do to slow the spread of this, and and you might be wondering, okay, well, so we slow the spread, we just flatten the curve, and just as many people are going to get sick, it's just going to take longer. Well, that may not be true. Uh, the The model that I told you about recently about how warmer temperatures and warm air with a little bit higher humidity, uh, slow down infection rate they they make you less susceptible to these respiratory viruses like the flu and the cold and possibly the coronavirus so what we would hope for 
is that we can keep the number of infections low enough until warm weather arrives. Now, that's being optimistic, but we're really not that far away from warm weather. And I was I was looking, and actually the the infection rates in the southern hemisphere right now are actually slower. Now, there's still not below one, but if we're all, but that's probably because of the large order network effects, because they already missed the first two levels where they could have stopped this. But if we can hold off until the warmer weather and we do all the things that we can to limit the spread in the meantime, then in the summer, the infection rate could actually drop below one. Now, what that means is now for every person who, who is infected, they're not even able to infect another person on a daily basis. It takes a collection of people to get the next person infected. And at that point, we're actually on an exponential decay of new cases, and it limits off. Uh, so say, for example, even if we hit 4 million infected, if you get a spread rate below one of uh, 0.95, then you actually don't have any more new infections after 60 days. So even though that's 4 million people, after two months, there's no more new infections. Now, of course, if you have 20,000 people, then you've got even, you've, you can shorten that down to under 30 days and it's over. These are really important things to think about, and unfortunately, I haven't heard any government body or any authority discussing these items because these are the core principles that need to be expressed if we want to limit how much this spreads and get done with it as quickly as possible. We don't want to be work. We don't want to limit the spread only to have to deal with this thing for another three or four months. We want to limit the spread as much as possible, and if we do, we could see this being over in potentially sixty days. Now, I know that's being optimistic, but it's possible. I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but it is possible with the collective effort of the people within free borders. So that would be the people of the United States. Even though you can move state to state freely, those are free borders. Um, obviously, within the Schengen region, which is Europe, which is includes most Western European countries, some Eastern European countries, they have free border movement. So if they also took these steps they could see the even with as many cases as they currently have they could significantly slow down the infection rate and if they do they would drop their number of potential cases before it gets warm here and it's getting warm here it's not that far off so very important don't travel stay within your community whatever that community is and don't go to gatherings. I don't care if it's 10 people or 250 people. Unless they're 10 people that you see like every day in your network, don't go. You're, you're basically enhancing the, the high-order network effects, and you're going to increase the spread rate. Um, and and I, I've heard so many people being like, oh, yeah, you know, and Joe Rogan is, is one of them. And I, you know, I enjoy his podcast, but... 
I have to say he's like, oh yeah, at the Laugh Factory, everybody was there, high-fiving, you know, it was crowded. That is just a really bad idea. I mean, LA probably has high-order network effects that would be hard to break anyway, but that's not a really good example of how people should be acting at this point. And I, I totally understand you want to go out and you do want to do things and you want to socialize. You just have to do that in your network. Like there's one coffee shop. It's a local coffee shop here that I go to. And that's the only coffee shop I'm going to now because it's the one that I've been going to for the past couple weeks pretty regularly. So I'm going to stay on that pattern. There's one grocery shop that I've been using for a couple weeks. So I only go to that one grocery shop and luckily it's 24 hours. So I only go after midnight because I'm trying to avoid other people again not just so I don't get sick, but I don't know what my status is. I don't have any symptoms, but I might never get any symptoms, uh, even if I do have the coronavirus. So, you know, these are important things. So, you know, that's a good question. How can you tell if you have the coronavirus or if somebody has the coronavirus? Well, at this point, it's pretty simple. Fever is unreliable. You may or may not get a fever. Chances are you will. But the most obvious and earliest symptom is a dry cough that becomes persistent. You're coughing a lot, but you're not like phlegm's not coming up. You're not spitting out fluid. That's going to be your kind of key symptom that you could have the coronavirus. After that, you could become feverish, extremely so. Um, And then later on, you'll have trouble catching your breath. Um, And... And it will evolve in that way. Now, if it's not a serious case, it probably won't get too terribly far. And for me, and this is something I'd like to get Rocky on here to talk about if he has an opportunity, but I have found from having whooping cough and other respiratory problems that I've I've had since I had pneumonia as a kid, Whenever I get any kind of respiratory infection, I always use an albuterol inhaler, which keeps the symptoms in my lungs. It always helps those to subside substantially while my body recovers from the virus. So I don't get better right away, but my lungs don't fill up with fluid or phlegm uh, like they will if I don't use it. Uh, So if you don't know, albuterol is a beta antagonist and it actually downregulates the immune system and that's what's filling up your lungs with garbage is your immune system um so i found that that ventolin inhalers limit the activation of my immune system in the lungs themselves so my body still has the virus and my body is still fighting it off but my lungs don't get filled up nearly to the same extent uh so i have actually a couple of those on hand uh, just in case now again, I'm, I, I know that works for me, and actually, I know it's worked for other people that I've been close to that I've recommended that to. But uh, I really want to get that checked out from a medical professional. And unfortunately, there I, could, I haven't found a lot of research on it yet to confirm that that is a good idea or to conclude that it's not a good idea. Um, but I know it works for me. So if, if you move past this, somebody on, on Twitter asked a question about how the virus 
kills you basically if your lungs start to fill up and they they were trying to rope in entropy and things like this probably because i've mentioned entropy before well if your lungs can't get oxygen then your blood doesn't get oxygen which means your cells don't get oxygen which means they try to become anoxic and they can only do that for so long before they just break down so i mean you you're basically suffocating slowly in an amazingly painful and destructive way i can't imagine how bad it is i mean just whooping cough a couple years ago was so horrendous on my body uh, I, I can't really describe what it was like to barely be able to breathe for two weeks. It was incredibly difficult just to live like that. Um, so, so I can't imagine that being taken to the point of dying from it. That would be incredibly horrible. So we'll try not to imagine that. And uh, and, and speaking of infection rates and risk of death and everything... If you remember previously, I said most of the time when these things subside and we have a chance to look back on the statistics, we usually find that the initial mortality risks are anywhere from one-tenth to one-hundredth what they first were, and it's it's approaching that way. All, as new cases come in and new people and more people recover, we're finding that the mortality rate is dropping over time, and I do expect at the end of this for it to be about a tenth overall of what it originally was so instead of three percent mortality risk i think overall what we're going to find when this is all analyzed post hoc is that we're at about 0.3 percent mortality overall so things are trending that way now again that that doesn't mean you should be super cavalier because even if you're low risk there's others around you who are not um, and, and this is, this hits home for me because somebody I'm very close to who lives in the Bay area and I've been close to for many years has Lyme disease and she has a compromised immune system and she is extremely high risk. And, you know, for me, period, I feel it's incumbent upon me as part of a society to, do what I can, obviously, that doesn't infringe upon my individuality or my freedoms, but to do what I can to protect those around me. And I've always naturally had that inclination. You can ask anybody I've ever been close to or my friends. I will, I will almost actually ruin myself to make sure that they're okay. So I have that natural inclination. Um, but I, I really hope that more people can find it within themselves, at least in this scenario and in any future pandemics, uh, to find that sense of community as well, to where they're not only worried about protecting themselves and what's going to happen to them, but also what's going to happen to those around them. I would, I would be devastated to lose my friend, uh, as I think any of us would be. And I've had enough loss in my life. I, I really don't want to experience more, especially over something like this where those kind of things could be prevented if everybody's just a little bit more thoughtful. You know, you don't have to completely alter your life. You just have to limit it in certain ways. At, at this point, especially. So I, I think we covered... 
why we should be avoiding events, why we shouldn't travel. We could really decrease the impact of this disease. Um, and we've covered how to know what are possible symptoms if you have it, how to possibly recognize those in others so you can be careful around them, and the unfortunate worst case outcomes, which are not great. Things are matching up to what I predicted. This is not, this, this is, I mean, if you want to say it this way, it's twice as deadly as the average flu. Um, so again, that fits within the numbers that I had predicted of we're going to see 80,000 to 400,000 or so deaths in the United States. That's just the unfortunate statistics of the matter. Right now, it, it's looking like it could be somewhere around 120,000 deaths, um, which are all a tragedy simply because this could have been stopped early on. Um, if any government had gotten its head out of its ass. Uh, so, so keep those numbers in mind because I've even heard, um, I think it's Fauci, who is the CDC spokesperson at the moment, who said we could see his best case scenario was 400,000 deaths and his worst case scenario was 1.2 million deaths in the United States from this disease. Now, if you run the numbers backwards, so from my 400,000 estimate at my high end, so if you run the, the numbers backwards, that's basically 3% of tested patients are going to be critical and of the critical, this is not true, but of the critical, we'll just say one half will die, which is a way overestimate. So in that scenario, and I'm way over, you'll understand why I'm way overestimating. So in that scenario, when you work backwards and then you estimate how much of the population actually has it, who never got tested. So for 400,000 people to die in the United States of this coronavirus, about 30 million will have to become infected overall. Now that might sound like a lot or a little to you. I'm not sure which way you're you're going to side on that, but that's about a bad flu season. A bad flu season will infect anywhere from 30 to 40 million Americans. So this is, again, on track with how the flu spreads as a pandemic. That doesn't mean this is the flu. I'm not making that comparison. So, so, so we would expect... 40 million, and I hope we limit it. So the, the smaller that number is, the, the more we can contain that 40 million people infected, the smaller the number of deaths will be. Now, Fauci and I have, I've actually tried several models. I did quite a few models to see how my estimates would hold up with real uh, pandemic models. And you can go to Google Scholar, look up pandemic models. It's usually a set of a uh, couple differential equations. And there's there's actually software out there where you can uh, put these in and, and run some models. I actually have an, a differential equation solver in my code for body AI. So I was able to just plug them into that and just try some different parameters and see how they work out. To get Fauci's 1.2 million deaths, so his low end is my high end. So his low end is that 40 million Americans are going to get infected. Now, if you take his high end of 1.2 million Americans, or, go, or sorry, 400,000 are going to die is his low end. His high end is 1.2 million. 
And when you work backwards from that, then pretty much over 200 million Americans will have to become infected with the coronavirus. To date, we've never had a pandemic as far back as I could go in the records. Even the 1918 flu has never affected that high of a, of a percentage of any population. So I don't know where he's getting his high number from. I like it doesn't make sense with any mo- even the worst models I could find where the authors of the papers compared models and said never use this model because it's garbage. Even that model didn't predict infection rates high enough to hit 1.2 million deaths in the US. So unless this thing becomes super deadly all of a sudden, and just like out of left field, that number is only there to terrify you. And I think at this point, most governments are trying to terrify their populations to get them to do the simple things I mentioned before. Don't travel. Stay in your social network. Don't go out of it. Stay away from gatherings. And unfortunately, instead of just being honest and giving you the statistics to help you understand what your choices can do to others, they're just trying to scare you. And maybe fear-mongering is the way to go. Unfortunately, when that's analyzed in hindsight, it makes people not trust their governments, which is kind of how all of this got started in the first place and how it's still causing problems. I also want to mention quickly, somebody shared this article with me and it's floating around in social media. It's by this um, this author and podcast host, David Crow, and he wrote this huge article about how the coronavirus is completely fake. And basically his argument is, well, I don't like how they're testing for it. Therefore, it must be completely fake. Now, before I go into how ridiculous this is, if you look up David Crow and his website and you go through his past podcasts and articles, let me just tell you the person you're believing if you believe him. This is a person who denies that AIDS is real. He denies that HIV is an infectious disease. For a while he denied, well, I, I think as far as I can tell, he still denied Ebola is real. He thinks that's fake. He seems to have come around that HIV is real, but he doesn't think it infects anybody and that it makes anybody sick. I mean, this is the type of person you're operating with. He even went so far in one podcast to claim that syphilis doesn't exist either, that it's been wiped out. I mean, this guy is completely irresponsible. He has several podcasts and off, out of academic journal writing uh, articles that won't get published because... The claims in them are ridiculous about how every infectious disease that we know of is fake and they're all being faked to sell medications. And this is so disrespectful to so many millions of people who've died around the world from common things like measles, obviously the Ebola virus, Zika, SARS, MERS, this coronavirus. This guy, if I could sum it up, is an asshole. Plain and simple. Now, I am all about free speech and being able to express your opinion. And as I've said before, freedom of speech does not put 
any responsibility on the speaker. The responsibility is on those who listen. And it's incumbent upon everybody else to call out these shysters who are like, I don't even know why he's doing it. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense to me why you would why you would act in this way. So, of course, he's saying the coronavirus isn't real because he doesn't like the swab test that's used for it. But what he fails to mention in his articles is that the virus has been isolated from several cases all around the world. They've tried to isolate the virus, then they incubate it, and then they do a genetic sequencing on the RNA strand of the virus. And it just so happens that randomly... In all the different places in the world, they all get sequences that match up that also match in the family of the coronavirus. But to him, that's not good enough. Like, I, I don't know what burden of proof it is that he wants or needs. Um, but, but this guy is just a jackass. I mean, so do, do a little bit of work when you get an article like this. I mean, it took me all of 30 minutes to look up David Crow, look through his past work, listen to snippets of his past podcast, and be like, I mean, this guy is an AIDS denier. I mean, that is unbelievably horrific for the communities that were ravaged by that disease um, and still are. I mean, there are still countries in Africa that are still really burdened by HIV and AIDS. Uh, and it's just amazing to me that people are, are so callous as to deny the suffering of those individuals. Uh, anyway, so if, if you find an article that's claiming the coronavirus is fake, uh, look at the author. It's probably David Crow, and this guy is a nutter, total nut job. Uh, let's see. What else did I have? Oh, I can say a little bit more about the virus. We know more about it now, uh, as I mentioned earlier. One of the things is it, is its it spread rates 1.2, which is which is kind of high, but it's it's not super infectious. Um, surface getting it from surfaces is unlikely they they figured out that that is an unlikely mode of transition it's still it's advantageous to wash your hands uh, you could introduce it to yourself on food or from putting your finger up your nose or in some other orifice that it shouldn't be in um, that is still a possibility but what they're finding is you either need to inhale it because somebody sneezed nearby that has the virus and or you are talking in close proximity for too long with somebody who has the virus. That's why healthcare workers right now are at very high risk and very high rate of transmission because they're around people all day and they're in close proximity and they have a very, very high risk of becoming infected. Most of us don't. And if we're just taking whatever minor, I mean, I, I take no precautions. I, what I said in my behavior and how it's changed, I wash my hands when I come home. And other than that, my, my day-to-day behave, behavior is incredibly ordinary, except that I limit the place. I just don't go to new places or places that I didn't visit often. I stick to my regular spots. Um, the ketogenic diet, as I said, if you're like 
very strongly ketogenic and really it's ultra low carb the ketone part doesn't matter if you're ultra low carb there is still i i did find a lot of evidence in animal models and my model of how the body works my framework also supports this there's a very high likelihood it won't prevent you from getting the virus but it will very much reduce the symptoms and reduce the risk of it being severe uh, there's a very high probability of that. I'm not promising, but all the evidence is there. Uh, and and actually that behavior has changed for me. I haven't been eating, I haven't been having my carb nights uh, since the infection kind of started started exploding here in Belgrade. Uh, I, forgo, I for, have forgone any carbs whatsoever. And I think that pretty much covers what I want to say about the coronavirus this time. Uh, again, be careful for, on both sides of the news, um, Geraldo Riviera, I guess is his last name. Uh, most of you know him as a, would know him as a commentator on Fox News. You know, he, be careful for stupid things. Like he said, if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds, then you don't have the coronavirus. That's just stupid. That's not true at all. That is not a way to test to see if you have the coronavirus. There, there really is no surefire way other to, than to go in and get tested. And, you know, we've talked about those tests. You could get a false positive, and then they're going to have to do a more invasive test, which might require blood. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure what the more invasive uh, methods they have for the secondary tests, but you, it could be a false positive. That's pretty much the only way you're going to know if you have this, just because its symptoms are so mild, especially in the beginning. So that's on the right side of the media that's really trying, like, I don't know, I, I, I actually don't know the goals of either side of the media, because on the left-leaning side of media, uh, I noticed a tactic they used. They found somebody on YouTube, he had gotten the coronavirus and he was hospitalized and he was recovering and he posted something on, on YouTube about how terrible it was. And they got him on air in an interview from his hospital room to talk about how terrible it was. And they introduced it was, well, if you don't think the coronavirus is serious, wait until you hear this person's whatever. Well, he was severely obese. He was at the very least pre-diabetic if not diabetic probably hypertensive and probably had some sort of cardiopulmonary issues i would guess he got winded walking up a flight of stairs this was a person who was in the incredibly high risk group for critical symptoms he was not he's not going to be typical so what they did was found one of the worst cases they could and pretended like it was typical it's not. That doesn't help anybody. Uh, again, that is so incredibly irresponsible. It sends people into a panic for no reason. And it makes people not trust your news source. Like, why would you trust them at this point? Like, I, I honestly just can't trust U.S. news. It, it almost sickens me to watch it for any coverage of anything because both sides are so polarized neither of their stories is even part of the full story 
it, it's really, it's sickening. It's just sickening. Uh, and, and that's why I'm doing these podcasts because I still have not heard any consistent, matter-of-fact, pragmatic conversations about everything involved with this coronavirus. And again, like I, I'm sure I sound very cavalier about it, and I'm not like this David Crow jackass who says coronavirus doesn't exist. I know it exists. I think it's very serious. And I'm taking steps to reduce the risk for others. I'm not even worried about myself. I, I'm fairly confident that if I got it, it would suck because of, of lung issues I've had in the past. I mean, I'm sure it would suck, but I don't think I would be hospitalized. And I think I'd be fine. I don't want to go through that, but I'm more concerned with those around me because there is a large ambulatory elderly population here they're out all the time and i would be putting them at risk for every three of them i would i could possibly kill one if i infect three people i'm going i've just killed a person if i infect three people 70 years or older i've just killed somebody because about one in three is going to potentially die uh and if i can prevent being involved in that then I'm going to prevent being involved in that. Uh, I think I think everybody should try to think in that same way, especially when you realize that your behavior is on the order of affecting millions of people versus potentially twenty to forty thousand people. That is a massive, massive difference in the number of deaths that we're going to see. Uh, and it, and it just takes a little bit of responsibility. Nothing extreme. Uh, I can't, I can't think of anything on the coronavirus, uh, unless we, unless, uh, the, there needs to be some discussion about vaccines. Again, people keep talking about those and asking for them. And like I said on a previous podcast, all evidence points to the fact that we will not see a coronavirus vaccine. And I don't mean not this year. There is a very very high probability that we will never see a coronavirus vaccine so don't count on that i think the route that that we could go that would be beneficial there would be antivirals and they i actually found several studies on using antivirals to slow down and control the spread of pandemics um, they had some very good models and they had some actual empirical data from tests that were run in, in certain cities for the flu and they they actually can be amazingly infe- uh, effective cutting the in the models and in some of the empirical data they cut the estimated number of infections down to 30 percent i mean that is massive that is a massive decrease in the number of potential infections from the antivirals so don't expect vaccines. Even I've been looking more and more into the flu vaccine. And basically for children, it, it does seem to have some benefit uh, to reduce the number of flu cases and reduce hospitalization for children from the flu and reduce mortality from the flu in children. Um, but over the age of 12, I, I still can find absolutely no evidence of benefit 
to the flu vaccine. But speaking of that, this answers another question somebody's been been asking me about on Twitter quite a bit with there's this uh, Dr. Chris Exley is his name. His entire work, his, his entire career worth of work has been focused on aluminum poisoning. And uh, aluminum can be a neurotoxin in, in high, in well, not even high dosages, in significant, in small dosages, like milligram dosages even. It could be neurotoxic. Could be. Um, we're, we're still looking at the evidence of that. But his entire work has been based on aluminum being the lead cause of Alzheimer's disease and he got a lot of press for a while you can look at how many times he was referenced and cited and things like that over the years and it started to wane quite a bit and it's because the aluminum hypothesis for Alzheimer's is just falling apart Uh, as we try to look at correlations and try to find some sense of causation for Alzheimer's it just falls apart because it can't explore it can't explain the full spectrum that we see like some people who have almost uh, no aluminum exposure compared to what he's predicting and who appear to be also not very overweight which he also attributes in some cases to aluminum poisoning they they get alzheimer's so they completely break his model and he has no explanation for that and over time the amyloid beta sheets that he says aluminum helps to form in his animal models i mean he's so he's he's giving the animals massive amounts of aluminum that humans would never ingest other than in some accidental overdose scenario so that clearly his animal models aren't any good at least in for analyzing humans and there's there's other explanations that work much better and explain all of the discrepancies that he can't. Uh, namely, I've talked about it before, if you become uh, any type of insulin resistant, not even diabetic yet, uh, that affects uh, how much insulin degrading enzyme gets used up, which is the same enzyme that breaks down amyloid beta, which the brain needs to function. And you can find out how susceptible you are to Alzheimer's based on the effectiveness of the type of insulin degrading enzyme that you produce and that explains every discrepancy that we see all the correlations match up everything's there so the aluminum hypothesis is falling apart and then he jumped to vaccines and rejuvenants used in vaccines uh, which are made of aluminum salts and they're put in and aluminum salts are put into vaccine because you can get a much higher immune response from the live virus in the vaccines if you use these aluminum salts we don't understand exactly how it works that's still being explored and he wrote his first paper on the aluminum in vaccines a few years ago uh, trying to look at what are the possible mechanisms of why they work because he thinks aluminum is so toxic we need to get them out of vaccines and he's recently re-emerged in popularity because he's attacked vaccines and he has said on podcasts and in works that vaccines are incredibly dangerous they're poisonous there's nothing safe about them at all kids shouldn't get vaccinated it increases their risk of all these neurological problems and 
so so he's basically tried to co-opt the anti-vaxxer movement but then if he's pressed on it he's oh i don't know anything about vaccines i'm not telling people to not vaccinate their children i'm just saying they're poison so he is saying don't vaccinate your children he's just trying to to backdoor his way into that and and he's gotten more popularity since so i think his motivation is to get his work recognized and to try to get it accepted, even though it's on the downward death spiral of legitimacy. And the reason he's gone after these vaccines is because his work is in aluminum, and it works out really well because his arguments are, well, we can't, we can't do the tests to know how toxic they are in kids or how much it increases a child's likelihood of getting Alzheimer's later, later because they have an entire lifetime between the vaccines and when they might get Alzheimer's. So it's really hard to, to piece that out. But I can tell you for sure they're toxic. You know, he likes to say that. I can tell you for sure they're not safe. Well, if you can't figure it out, like how can he tell us for sure? And what he never mentions, and I looked through several of his papers, he, he has published in reputable academic journals. And I have looked through several of his papers. He hasn't published about vaccines, oddly enough, very much in uh, academic journals probably because they would just throw out his paper but i have noticed that he what he doesn't mention what he never mentions is the flu vaccine which is really interesting because of course childhood vaccines there is he's right there is no way that we could know if the childhood vaccines had any correlation to alzheimer's later in life there's so much life that happens in between it would be hard to isolate all the variables but the flu vaccine does contain the aluminum salts and it contains it in high enough dosages to what he says are toxic and poison so a really simple test of his theory of if vaccines and the aluminum in them can lead to alzheimer's or other conditions would be to look at people who get the flax flu vaccine every year and does it increase their risk of alzheimer's we'll just pick alzheimer's in this case They've actually done that study, and it turns out that if you get the flu vaccine yearly, your risk of developing Alzheimer's actually goes down. So this guy is basically hiding the information that shows that he's full of shit. Like, he, he, he's obviously not a stupid guy. How can he be so stupid then as to not notice the most easy test of his theory of the toxicity of aluminum in vaccines when it's right there and people get the damn shot every year? There's tons of data, and a lot of them get it later in life, so the data is even more pertinent to whether it raises their Alzheimer's risk. And in fact, it lowers the risk. Now, it wasn't statistically significant, but... People who got the flu shot regularly had a lower incidence of Alzheimer's. Now, statistically, that's not enough to, to say to give causation or correlation. Obviously, never causation, but even the correlation is weak. So I'm not saying get the flu shot and it's going to prevent Alzheimer's. But clearly, it does not cause Alzheimer's or increase the chances of Alzheimer's. Um, so... You know, these are the things you have to look into. You have to ask those questions when something seems maybe maybe believable, you know, because there's no reason why you wouldn't believe that. He has done a lot of work on aluminum. We know aluminum can be a neurotoxin in high dosages. 
and maybe it builds up over time and maybe he has some argument that's credible but when he won't talk about something that i can just sit here and think of it's like oh well a really good test of that would be flu vaccines and how does that correlate with alzheimer's when he won't present that it tells you he's doing it for some other reason and I believe from looking at his statistics and the fact that his Alzheimer's and aluminum connection, that work is falling apart. The correlations keep weakening every time there's a study done. There's other explanations that can explain everything that his theory can't. Um, his models don't pan out in humans. You know, I, I think it's this effort to try to get some recognition and keep his work going. And I, I'm not necessarily faulting that. Again, it's incumbent upon us, the receivers of that information, to analyze and critique it and take it for what it is. And this happens in science all the time. I, I mentioned string theory earlier in the podcast. Well, in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was in graduate school, it was clear to me then that it was headed down a dead end. And there are several reasons for that. And, and it's actually gotten worse um, over time. But basically string theory is at a point where there's so many problems with it and everything that they've done to try to fix those problems to make it viable again has made it even more impossible um, for example for string theory to work general relativity has to be completely wrong general relativity if you don't know has it's responsible for a prediction of gravitational waves of black holes even the orbit of um, mercury those all the, the for how gravity works it's a geometric effect it turns out it has been verified experimentally so many times i mean it is incredibly robust nobody in the physics community doubts general relativity but if you want to believe in string theory you have to think that general relativity is completely wrong that it can't exist and that's because in a space-time that bends, like general relativity says ours does, and that we've proven that it does, if string theory were put into that space, the first time space bent even just a little bit, the entire universe would shatter. So clearly the current models of string theory just on that one point can't work. And there's other more technical reasons um, that were the reasons that I thought it it couldn't be uh, worth anything, and that happens. That that has to do with background independence and other things. It, you know, uh, they're technical, but since then, those those problems have only gotten worse. It's very clear to everybody, except string theorists, that string theory is garbage. It's way past its expiration date, and it, it's actually created some amazing mathematics but it hasn't done anything for physics whatsoever. So you have people like Brian Greene who wrote The Elegant Universe, and he did that at a particular time when string theory was struggling and when it was going through its first death throes. And it was incredibly irresponsible because he wrote the book. He's a string theorist, and he wrote the book as if string theory is true. We just know it's true. Um, another physicist who's doing that is Lee Smolin. He just pretends that string theory is true. We just know it's true. We just haven't figured it out yet. Well, Actually, what we figured out is that it can't possibly be true in this universe. Maybe there's some other universe where it does work, but it does not work in ours. And that is completely irresponsible of them. But the reason they're doing it 
is because their entire life's work is in that field and they need to make sure that it stays popular in some way so they can continue their work. Um, so I'm sure that Dr. Chris Exley really passionately believes that aluminum is destroying the world, that aluminum in the diet of people is causing every malady that there is and it's killing everybody. I'm sure he believes that wholeheartedly. He speaks passionately. But, and and so he wants to continue to pursue that. But unfortunately, the evidence isn't there. So he's turning to other routes, uh, which is the vaccine route, which was easy to jump on because of anti-vaxxers and hanging on to that fear. So um, again, vaccines to date, as far as we know, don't correlate with anything. But we do know for a fact because of anti-vaxxers that not vaccinating populations appropriately leads to childhood death. We also know that several of these diseases like measles, mumps, rubella, your child may get it if they're not vaccinated and they might recover if they're not vaccinated. But you've introduced two new risks. One risk is that they die and the other risk, if they recover, they might have permanent brain damage. So how are you going to explain that to your kids later in life? Say, well, you know, I could have gotten you vaccinated, but I decided it was worth the risk that you might might have brain damage. I just, I was willing to toss that coin. Sorry. Like, how, how would you say that to your children? And then the next question is, what if there was a coronavirus vaccine available tomorrow? How many anti-vaxxers would take it? I I. I think that's a legitimate question. Uh, with the at, with the atmosphere of panic right now, I would bet you a bunch of them would jump on board in a heartbeat. Now, surprisingly, I am not an anti-vaxxer. I think vaccinating children is incredibly important and socially responsible. And it's so far in favor statistically of the benefit of your child. I don't know how anybody could be so uncaring of a parent to not vaccinate their child if their child can be vaccinated obviously there's some with immunodeficiency disorders and they can't be vaccinated but that being said if there were a coronavirus vaccine tomorrow i actually probably wouldn't take it but that's me uh just because i would doubt its efficacy just as i do the flu vaccine and again this is an important part of science you can't just because it something has the word vaccine attached to it you can't just assume that it works we know the childhood vaccines work and the flu vaccine is something different and unfortunately it looks like it really doesn't have a lot of benefits other than in kids which is fine but there's no reason for adults to get it that i can see so i will continue to never get the flu vaccine uh even in elderly populations it doesn't seem to decrease any statistic whatsoever mortality incidents it, it, hospital visits it just doesn't seem to do anything um so all right i think that wraps this up i have covered like everything i can think of with the coronavirus up to this point even giving you more information of expecting how this to unfold worst case scenario best case scenario what you should be trying to do for the best case scenario and how bad it'll get if you don't give a shit and just do whatever, uh, which still 
is not catastrophic. Uh, I, I still just, I can't find any way to get to that 1.2 million deaths in the United States from the coronavirus. Um, maybe there's some model that Fauci knows that I could not find anywhere in any literature ever published on the fact, but at the moment that is just preposterous. That is a preposterous number. Um, but people are dying and more will die and it's within every single one of our halo of control and I'm using halo for a specific reason it's within our control to reduce that number significantly without even making many changes in our daily life and we could be done with this thing in two months um, that's the best absolute best case scenario and it's possible it's even at this point it's completely possible um, it just depends on how we act as individuals and if in acting as individuals we're thinking about the benefit to the greater community around us all right i am going to wrap this one up because it just ran over more than i expected Hope everybody finds this useful, and if you're panicking, I hope you're not. If suddenly you thought the coronavirus was fake, I hope you realize it's real. And stay safe, stay calm, um, take care of yourself, and take care of your neighbors.